So I will, I will now invite the wonderful Claire Osage to the stage to chair this first session. Claire, as I'm sure, I'm sure you all know Claire, um, we worked together um, for Christine for many years and, um, and she is the editor with Simon Copland of the uh, Green Agenda and uh, one of the great minds and lovely, loveliest people in the green. So thank you, Claire. <laughs> Very sweet, thank you. Um, look, I'm really excited to be chairing this session because this is a session with a couple of speakers on basically different conceptions of economics and uh, what economics can and should be um, in our society um, rather than what it is. So as Tim said, first up we've got um, Kate Raworth um, and Kate is a renegade economist focused on exploring the economic mindset needed to address the 21st century's social and ecological challenges and is the creator of the Donut Theory of Social and Planetary Boundaries. She's a senior visiting research associate at Oxford's University Environmental Change Institute and the author of Donut Economics, Seven Ways to Think Like a 21st Century Economist. It's a book I have just read um, and we're going to hear about it now, but... Um, uh, I would totally recommend it um, as well um, afterwards to uh, grab a copy. But we'll hear from Kate on the video. Hello, I'm Kate Rayworth. I'm sitting in my little office at my house in Oxford in the UK. I really wish I was there with you in Canberra, and I'm sorry I'm not, but video is a pretty good second way to be able to join in. So thanks for having me to take part in your fantastic discussions today. And congratulations to the Green Institute and others for 25 years of green politics and economics influencing Australia. I'm delighted to join you to think about what that would look like for the next 25 years. I think the biggest contribution I can talk about for shaping green politics over the next 25 years is to make sure that we transform green economics. And the way we want to transform green economics is to make it simply economics. I believe passionately that if we don't transform the economic mindset by which today's students are taught, we will not be able to transform the way that policies are made, the way that businesses are run, the way that we talk about and debate the economy in our societies. So I'm passionate about rewriting economics to make it fit for the 21st century. And I want to just introduce you to a couple of the ideas that I've been exploring in the last couple of years and in my book, Donut Economics. I've been really inspired by the ideas of this man, Buckminster Fuller, American inventor from the last century. And he said, you never change things by fighting the existing reality. To change something, build a new model that makes the existing model obsolete. I think that's a fantastic inspiration. Sometimes the best form of protest is to propose something new. And when it comes to thinking about economics, I think we're far beyond merely protesting against the old and outdated mindset that is being taught in universities. It's time to present a new economic mindset that will transform not only university thinking and teaching, but the debate in our parliaments, the debate in public media and the debate in the street. So Buckminster Fuller is my inspiration. And with that, I want to propose something new to you. I want to propose a compass that could guide us through the 21st century. And silly though it sounds, it looks a bit like a donut. So let me explain to you this donut. In the hole in the middle in the donut, you can see a place where people are falling short on life's essentials, where people don't have the food, healthcare, education, housing, political voice, gender equality, and other attributes that are essential for every person to lead a life of dignity, opportunity, and community. 
And these 12 social dimensions, I crowdsourced them from the world's governments, from the Sustainable Development Goals. So we want to get everybody in the world over that social foundation and into the donut itself. But we cannot put so much pressure on this extraordinary living planet that we begin to kick it out of kilter, causing climate breakdown, ocean acidification, massive land conversion, biodiversity loss. And these nine dimensions around the outside of the donut, these are the nine planetary boundaries that Earth system scientists like Johan Robstrom and Will Steffen, Will Steffen in Australia, have drawn up over the last, uh, since 2009, so the last eight years, saying what is it that holds the planet in this extraordinary stable state that has been so benevolent to humanity? And they believe these nine planetary boundaries are essential, so we can't overshoot our pressure on these boundaries. That means humanity's challenge, to put it in its most simple terms, is to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet, to get everybody over the social foundation, but to stay within that ecological ceiling. Well, I'm proposing this to you as a compass for the 21st century. But if it's a compass, then you want to know where the needles are pointing. Here's where they're pointing, and it's not a pretty picture. On every one of those social dimensions, millions, indeed billions of people may be falling short. 11% of people don't have access to enough food every day. One person in three has no access to a toilet. And on every one of these dimensions, people are falling short. And yet we have already overshot at least four of these planetary boundaries on climate change, on excessive fertilizer use, nitrogen and phosphorus, on biodiversity loss and land conversion. And as Earth system scientists say, we don't even know where we are at a global scale on air pollution and chemical pollution. So this is the picture of humanity and our, our common home at the start of the 21st century. And I believe this is our generational challenge, that future generations, our children's grandchildren, will remember us not for Donald Trump, not even where I live for Brexit. They'll remember us as the generation that had the chance to start turning this situation around because we were the first to know and see this full picture, but probably the last to have an open chance to do something about it. And of course, the question is, will we? Will we begin to put ourselves on track for meeting the needs of all within the means of the planet? Well, I believe one of the transformations that's necessary to start making this happen, and there are, of course, many, one of them is rewriting economics. The economic education that's being taught to students in universities and high schools right now all around the world, those who want to help transform the future. Because those students are going to be the policymakers, the business leaders, the activists, the community members, the lawyers, of 2050. But they're still being taught ideas that come straight out of the textbooks of 1950, which in turn are based on theories of 1850. And given the scale of 21st century challenges, from climate change to extreme inequality to repeated financial crisis, this is shaping up to be a disaster. They deserve a far richer economic mindset if they're going to have even half a chance of taking on this challenge. So I want to introduce you to the 20th century mindset that I think we need to get rid of and replace it with 21st century ideas that are worthy of the generation that has to take it on. So some of the diagrams at the heart of 20th century economics, diagrams because they're powerful, they shape the way we think. And I'm going to dive in here and just tell you about two of these, what the economy is and who we believe we are. So the story of what the economy is 
goes back to this gentleman, Paul Samuelson. He was teaching economics at MIT in the 1940s. And Samuelson knew the power of writing the textbooks. As he said, I don't care who writes a nation's laws or crafts its advanced treaties, so long as I can write its economics textbooks. The best bit. The first lick is the privileged one, impinging on the beginner's tabula rasa at its most impressionable state. You see, Paul Samuelson thinks your mind is a blank slate and he wants to lick it. And of course, he already has licked it because the diagram he drew of what the economy is shapes how everyone has drawn their diagrams ever since. He was teaching engineering students at MIT and so to make it easy for them, he drew it looking a bit like a radiator sister with water flowing round and round and round the pipes. Now that diagram has evolved, but only a little bit in the last 70 years. Today it's taught to every student as the circular flow of income diagram. You can see income going round and round between business and households, that's the essential market relationship, turning labour and capital into wages and profit, the money comes back as consumer spending and goes on goods and services. And yes, there are some leakages. Some goes from say into savings, into banks that put it back in as investment. That's not actually how banks work, but I'm not even going to touch that today. Some of it is taken off as government taxes, but put back in as public spending. That's not actually how governments raise and spend public money, but I'm not going to touch that anyway. And some goes off for trade and comes back in from exports. But essentially, as you can see, the diagram shows that the economy is closed and circular because, of course, it only tracks what's monetized. But this is still the biggest diagram that any economist can show you today of the economy. And oh, the blank spaces. It makes absolutely no mention of the living world. All of the materials and energy and matter that are drawn daily into the economy and spewed out as waste and pollution. It makes no mention of the unpaid caring work of parents, the cooking, washing, cleaning, sweeping, done by parents and carers, traditionally women, worldwide, to make that labour fresh and ready for work every day. And it makes no mention of the commons, the place where people organise, not with the market, not with the state, but as a community, co-creating goods and services that they value. Well, if the biggest picture that economics can show us today is silent on the living world, silent on unpaid care and silent on the commons, three of the most fundamental sources of our well-being, then we know we're in trouble and these blank spaces are going to come back to bite us. What about the story of 20th century economics about who we are? That goes obviously back to Adam Smith. And Smith actually had a nuanced view about who we are. He believed that self-interest is powerful for making markets work but that our interest in others is essential for making society work. He championed our public, just, our public generosity, our public spirit, our sense of justice and compassion. But when economists such as John Stuart Mill came along, they wanted to make a model of humanity to put at the heart of what they believe should be a science. And so Mill said, political science, uh, sorry, political economy does not treat the whole of man's nature, nor the whole of his conduct in society, but sees him as a being who desires to possess wealth. And just there, he plucked out this idea of self-interest as the trait that would define the DNA of humanity in economics. Well, over time, that character has been amplified, and we now know him as rational economic man. He's never actually drawn in the textbook, so I, I decided to draw him here. And he would look something like this. He'd be a man, standing alone, with money in his hand, 
ego in his heart, a calculator in his head, and nature at his feet. He hates work, he loves luxury, and he knows the price of everything. Well, the real trouble with this character is not just how absurdly narrow he is, it's what looking at him does to us. Because on being told that we are like him, the more that university students learn about economic man, we actually become more like him. The more we're told he's like us, we become more like him. Students going from year one to year two to year three, they begin to say that they value self-interest more and they give less credence to altruism, compassion, collaboration. So what began as a model of man turns into a model for man. Who we tell ourselves we are shapes who we become, which makes a huge importance of the way we describe ourselves, consumer or citizen, neighbor, activist, community member, global citizen. These words are valuable. Well, I believe that with this idea of the economy just being what's marketed and of humanity being this rational economic character, we stand no chance of bringing ourselves back into this space. We've ignored the living world. We've ignored the incredible possibilities of human collaboration that we need to draw on to meet the needs of all within the means of the planet. So let me tell you some 21st century ideas I'd like to replace those outdated ideas with. And of course, I want to show them in pictures because of the power of pictures. So first, the diagram of the economy that students should encounter. Worldwide students this week have been taught supply and demand at the beginning of their economics degrees. I would not begin economics with that, nor with Samuelson's radiator system. I'd show this diagram. I call it the embedded economy diagram. And if you know anything of ecological economics, feminist economics and commons theory, you'll see I've brought them together in one picture. So we've got the economy embedded in society and its social and cultural political institutions embedded within the living world, drawing in daily matter and materials and energy and spewing out waste and pollution. And the economy is embedded in this solar energy, this river of solar energy, which we should learn to harness to meet our needs. So from the first day, we can ask the question, how big can the through flow of the economy be before it begins to disrupt the very Earth's supporting systems on which we fundamentally depend? But also within the economy, you can see that it's divided into four key provisioning sectors, not just the market and the state. That was a 20th century ideological boxing match, which squashed out our ability to see two other key sectors, the household, where we all begin every day. And the commons, where we come together as a community, whether it's to create a garden on the corner of our neighbourhood block or create Wikipedia online. Of course, the household and the commons don't show up in the measure of GDP, of national income. Only the market and the state do. But they make huge contributions to our well-being. And then finance there is drawn as a flow because it should be a flow in service to the functioning of these four forms of provisioning of the real economy. I think the state particularly has a key role to rebalance the relationships between the market and the commons, the market and the household, because the market for over a century now has colonized and squashed the space of these other forms of provisioning. And we need to give them space to breathe and meet our well-being. But also, what would it take to put finance in service to society? Now, there's a question, a very different kind of financial system from the one we have today. What about who we are? We are not rational economic man. We're so much more interesting than that. Yes, we can be self-interested, but we're also socially reciprocating, giving and taking and punishing others who don't cooperate back. 
We're not dominant over nature. We're deeply embedded in the web of life. And far from being work-hating, we're actually purpose-seeking. And we're the lucky ones if our work and purpose come together. So we need a far richer picture of humanity at the heart of economics because who we tell ourselves we are shapes who we become. And we need to draw on the richest side of our natures if we're going to thrive 10 billion of us on this planet this century. So that's a quick overview of some of the ideas at the heart of my book. If you believe with me that pictures are powerful in reframing the paradigms and helping find new words, then you might enjoy these. I've had the privilege of working with some of the world's best stop motion animators and we've made a one minute video for each of the seven ways to think like a 21st century economist that are set out in my book. You can see they're funny, silly, irreverent, playful, and I think that's key. We've got to take economics out of the equations, bring it back into our bodies, our hearts, make it laugh in our bellies. We need to make it accessible to everybody because we all need to be part of making an economy in which we can all thrive, meet the needs of all within the means of the planet this century. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to have joined you. I hope that puts in some food for thought, but not donut food. Don't eat donuts. They're not that good for you. It's just an idea. Thanks so much for letting me be part of your conference. Great discussions to you, but goodbye. How great is that? It's like, <laughs> it's really good, right? It's just really, um, there's a whole lot of ideas in this book that you know, aren't necessarily particularly new, but the way that Kate has pulled them together and um, you know, she goes through why we're uh, why we're where we are now, as you know, you saw there, and then how we can break it all open and, and reconstruct it um, in this way. So we unfortunately don't get to ask Kate questions because she's probably asleep uh, where she lives in Oxford. Um, but if you do have questions, I would recommend you um, getting a copy of this book and reading it and um, and um, you know engaging with it and, and talking about it. And it's, yeah, it's really great stuff, I reckon.